the Bible has some strange stories. The story that confronts us this morning is one that just might strike you as unbelievable. To some of you, it will be unthinkable. It is unimaginable that this story would be found in sacred scripture. Yes, the Bible contains some strange stories. Today we continue our study of the book of Judges. We find ourselves in Judges chapter 11. I want to read in your hearing verses 29 to 40. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. This morning I want to speak to you about a promise that is hard to keep. Judges chapter 11, let me get in verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead. From there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns. From Aror to the vicinity of Manith, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was the only child except for her. He had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh, my daughter, you've made me miserable and wretched because I made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Following the days of Abimelech, there were 45 years of peace and prosperity, four and a half decades when life was going well. Life on the up and up in Israel is a time of peace. It was a time of prosperity. When you and I come to Judges chapter 10, verse 6, we read those infamous words, Israel once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Are they ever going to learn to cycle? Are they ever going to learn that after prosperity, they become complacent and then they dive deeply into disobedience? That's the cycle that we're used to. We've become accustomed to it over the last several weeks. I came to this conclusion that sometimes the comfortable life can lead to a complacent character. The comfortable life can lead to a complacent character. 
The most dangerous times in your life are not tough times. Tough times tend to create people dependent on the Lord. The most dangerous time in your life is when everything's going your well, when life is comfortable. It's when you just aced the test, when you just made the winning field go, when you just received the acceptance letter from college of choice, when you just got married, when you just landed the new job, when you and your wife started the family, when you just got the promotion at work that proved to be extremely lucrative. It's when your first grandchild was on the way. It's when you financially calculated the realization that you could retire early. Friend, when life is comfortable, that's when you have to watch out. Because the comfortable life can lead to a complacent character. I think that's what happened for those 45 years in the life of Israel. They became complacent. Israel became lax in her character unto the Lord. Once again, the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How much evil did they do, you ask? Well, let me answer it this way. I want all of us to lay eyes on Judges chapter 10, verse 6. In Judges chapter 10, verse 6, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. If you were counting, there would be total number of seven. Seven pagan gods. The number of seven in the Bible is the number of totality and completion. So they're diving deeply into sin. The end goal of sin in their life and yours is the same. To take you on a path where you're going to do more than you ever intended to do. That's the path of disobedience. That's the path of sin. To prompt you, to cause you, to nudge you, to tempt you, to do more disobedience than you ever thought possible. They're just going to worship the Baals. And worshiping Baal led to the worship of this idol and this god and this goddess. When you get to its totality, it's seven different pagan nations and all of their gods. That's the effect of sin. So you get down to Judges chapter 10, verse 13. And the Lord says, I will no longer save Israel. Chilling words. I will no longer save Israel. She's gone too far. You know that God is gracious. He is patient, but he's not a pushover. Payday comes someday for your sin and for mine. And for the days of Israel, it was here in Judges chapter 10, verse 13, when he said, I will no longer save Israel. I will no longer rescue them. I will no longer redeem them. I will no longer forgive them. I will no longer liberate them. I will give them over forever to their adversary. I will no longer save Israel. Can you imagine more chilling words than those? If you think that God reaching his limit for your sin is just an Old Testament principle, let me remind you of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1 in the New Testament, God gave them over to their sinful desires. He gave them over to their sexual lust. He gave them over to a depraved mind. I don't want a God who is fair with you, and I don't want a God who's fair with me. I don't want a God who has a hands-off approach, and I certainly don't want to have a God who says, I will no longer save you. This caught the attention of the people of Israel. They responded in repentance and prayer. They got rid of all of their pagan idolatry. They cried out to the Lord. 
You drop down to chapter 10, verse 16. It says that the Lord could no longer bear the misery of Israel. Now you think that's a negative statement. It's really a positive statement. The Lord can no longer bear the misery of Israel. In other words, he got to the point where he just couldn't help but forgive them. I want you to know that forgiveness is not based on the length of your prayers. Forgiveness is not based on the sadness that's etched on your brow. Forgiveness is not based in you. Forgiveness is based in the character of God Almighty. He forgives you because he just can't help but forgive you. He gets to the point where he can bear your misery no longer, so he gives you his mercy. He can bear your sin no longer, so he gives you his salvation. He can bear the grossness of your sin no longer, so he gives you grace. I don't know about you, but that calls me to shout and say amen, hallelujah, glory to God. I am so glad that God gets to the point where he says, I can bear your misery no longer. And God forgives. But you've got to get to the point where your sin is as vile in your eyes as it is in the eyes of the Lord. I don't know about you, but it's real easy for me to get disgusted with somebody else's sin. It is so easy for me to say, can you believe that lifestyle? Can you believe that decision? Can you believe that choice? Can you believe what he's doing? Can you believe what she's doing? Can you believe what they're doing? Oh my, that is an abomination unto the Lord. It is easy to get self-righteous with somebody else's sin. It is so easy for me to get aggravated at the sin of others, but do I take that same level of disgust when I turn it towards my own sin? Oh, friends, you've got to get disgusted with your sin. You've got to get to the point where you say, you know what? Sin is prompting me to do more than I ever thought possible. It is prompting me to go further than I was willing to go. It's prompting me to do more than I ever thought I would be capable of doing. It is prompting me to do more disobedience and more defiance uh, and more just disgusting things in the eyes of the Lord. And your sin, the greed, the gossip, the lust, the anger, the envy, the pride, the disobedience, your sin, your sin has to get so vile disgusting in your eyes that you cry out to the Lord and the Lord responds by saying, I can no longer bear the misery of your sin. I want to give you a statement and the statement goes something like this, that God's massive mercy covers the magnitude of our mess. Is there anybody here that's in a mess is there anybody here that can acknowledge your sin has messed you up? Is there anybody here in the middle of tragedy, in the midst of a storm, uh, in, in the midst of chaos? It may be a health concern. It may be a relational problem. It could be marital woes. It could be problems with your children. It could be a, a dysfunctional family. It could be a, a grandchild that's in a far country. Is there anybody who has a mess in their life? I came to tell you that God's massive mercy can cover the magnitude of your mess. You read this story of Judges 10 and 11, and, and, and that comes as a recurring theme over and over. God is merciful. Praise the Lord. He gets to the point where he can bear your sin no longer, and he forgives, and he saves, and he redeems. And all we have to do is just say, thank you, Jesus. All we can do is say, praise his holy name. The people responded in faith. God raised up a judge. This judge is named Jephthah. 
Interesting name, isn't it? The name Jephthah is a name that communicates that he was a mighty warrior. Now, Jephthah, he had a shoddy, shady origin. His dad was named Gilead. Scripture tells us the beginning of Judges chapter 11 that his mom was a prostitute. Can I just stop right there? Have you discovered all of the people in Judges, many of the people in Judges, they have sexual sin that is prominent in their life. I mean, we got all kinds of people doing all sorts of things in the book of Judges and all types of sexual sin. But you also know that in this day, there are all types of people that are still doing all types of sexual sin and perversion. For Jephthah, his dad was Gilead. His mom, she's anonymous. We don't even know her name, but we do know that she was a prostitute. Can you imagine at elementary school when it was career day? Hey, bring in your mom and dad. Let's tell all the children what they do, how they make their money. Young Jephthah, who do you have with you? This scantily clad woman, who is that? Oh, that's your mommy. What does your mommy do? Right? Awkward. That's, that's Jephthah. Now, Gilead had a wife. And why that wife didn't kill Jephthah after the one-night hookup with the prostitute, I don't know. But Gilead had a wife. Together they had multiple children. The sons that were born to Gilead and his wife said to Jephthah, you will not receive any of the inheritance, for you belong to that other woman. Oh, this called Jephthah to leave the family farm, travel north. He got into a gang, that's what we would call it. He gathered around himself a bunch of ruffians and thugs. They became a pretty uh, mighty army. When God needed a deliverer, he raised up Jephthah, the son of a prostitute. Once again, this reinforces the point that we've made time and time again, that God takes ordinary people to do extraordinary tasks. He calls ordinary people, flawed people, bad people, wrong people, people with a, with a bad past, people with a, a shady origin, people that have difficult skeletons in their closet, yet he calls them and they do extraordinary things. God's in the business of taking ordinary people like you and like me and empowering us to do extraordinary things in his kingdom. That's what he does here in this story. He raises up this mighty warrior who had Gilead as a dad, a prostitute as a mom. His name is Jephthah. And he says, I want you to go against the Ammonites. Now Jephthah, he, at first, he, um, he kind of sent a letter, an email, posted something on his Instagram page. He, he sent word to the king of the Ammonites. Why are you coming against Israel? And that king responded by saying, you have my land. When the Israelites came out some 300 years ago, they took my land, the land of my people. So give it back peaceably. And Jephthah responded with a letter by saying, you've got your facts wrong. It's not that we took your land. You would not give us proper passage. And by the way, this is a 300-year-old problem. Why are you just now trying to correct it? I'll tell you what, you just need to not come against Israel. The king of the Ammonites threw caution to the wind. He advanced against Israel the Spirit of the Lord filled 
Jephthah. We're not told much about the battle, but we are told that Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give the Ammonites into my hands today, then when I return home, whatever comes out of my house to greet me will be the Lord's, and I will offer it as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering. He made that vow, and as the reader, you don't think much about that vow, at least not at the beginning of the story. He made the vow willingly. He made the vow voluntarily. It was a vow that binded him and his word to God and to God's word. We're not told very many details of the battle, but we are told that Jephthah, he slaughtered, devastated, overtook 20 towns. I mean, he cleaned their clock. He was victorious. It was like a shutout. The other team scored nothing, right? He goes back home to Mizpah. The band is playing the favorite song. Everybody's excited, hooping and hollering. And as Jephthah makes his way back home, who comes out to meet him? His daughter. His darling daughter. His only child. We are told that he didn't have a son or a daughter other than this one. And Jephthah tears his clothes. He says, my daughter, my daughter, you, you've made me miserable today. I made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Apparently, she's old enough to understand the vow. I think he probably tells her the content of the vow that was made, the promise that was made. And she responds by saying, you've given your word to the Lord. Do as you have said. I do make this one request, though. Give me two months to go to the hill country with my friends so I can weep and grieve because I will never marry. And Jephthah says, yeah, that's fine. Sure, go. So she went for two months she came back after that two-month period, and the Scripture says that Jephthah did to her what he had promised, for she was a virgin. She would never marry. Then we're given a, par a parenthetical statement that says uh, that this began the Israelite custom that young girls would uh, go out with their friends in the hill country for about four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. And that's the story. Friends, that's a weird story. That's a strange story. It's strange on multiple levels, right? All throughout the story, when you realize that, wait a minute, this promise that this judge made, it just might come back to bite him. It just might be problematic. It's at that moment that you think to yourself, okay, God's going to step in and stop the vow. God's going to step in and stop this. God is going to do something in a remarkable way. He's going to step in. He's going to stop it just like he did in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham takes his one and only son Isaac. They go up Mount Moriah. He's going to sacrifice him there. Young Ike says, look, Dad, I've got everything but the sacrifice. Where is the lamb? And God will provide the lamb, says the father. They get to the top and 
Abraham puts Isaac on the altar. Now the reality is Isaac at this time is not some five-year-old boy with cute blonde curly locks of hair. He's probably a strong strapping teenager who could uh, whip his old man if push came to shove and he could outrace him down the mountain if he needed to. But the son Isaac, oh, he, he submits to the will of his father. And Isaac is placed there on the altar. And all of this is symbolism, foreshadowing uh, what happened on Mount Moriah will take place on Mount Calvary. And Jesus will be slain there. He will submit to the will of the Father. And right as Abraham, Father Abraham, draws the dagger as his hand is shaking and he's about to drive it into the center uh, chest area of his son, it is the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, who says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Now I know you will not withhold anything from me, not even your one only son, Isaac. And Abraham looks up, and there in the thicket was a ram caught by its horns. And that ram was sacrificed in place of Isaac, that picture of substitutionary atonement, which once again is foreshadowing to its fulfillment at Mount Calvary, that Jesus would be our suitable substitute. He would die so that we might live. It's a great story, Genesis 22. We expect God to do something like that in Judges chapter 9. In Judges chapter 11. But he doesn't, does he? God doesn't step in. God doesn't stop the promise. He doesn't stop the vow that Jephthah made. If you look at the vow, he says, Lord, I promise that if you give the Ammonites into my hands today, whatever comes out to greet me from my house when I return home victorious from war will be the Lord's. If he had stopped right there, okay, that's fine. Whatever comes out, I will dedicate to the Lord, okay? If he had said, Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, then when I return home today, I will make a sacrifice as a burnt offering unto you. Okay, that makes sense. If he had said, if I get the victory, whatever comes out of my house will be the Lord's. Or if he had said, Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, then when I return home, I will offer a burnt offering sacrifice unto you that's pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We would have said, okay, that sounds fine. But it appears that Jephthah puts both those together. Whatever comes out of my house will be the Lord's. And I will offer it as a burnt sacrifice. It's at this point that I want to talk to Jephthah. Don't you? I want to ask him a few questions. The first question I want to ask him is this, what are you thinking? Right? I mean, don't you want to ask that? What are you thinking? Didn't it remotely cross your mind that it could be conceivable and possible that the first one to come out the door of your house just might be your daughter? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever think that it could be possible that she would be the one that would come out? And if you made a promise to sacrifice her as a burnt offering, you know what a burnt offering means. Jephthah, you, you're, you gotta, you got to chop up the animal. you got to chop the, separate the limbs from the body. And if you sacrifice your daughter, you're going to have to sacrifice her by chopping her legs and arms away from her body and sacrificing her there. Don't you remember that the Lord says in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that he does not delight in human sacrifice? Jephthah, what are you thinking? Furthermore, Jephthah, did it not even dawn on you that it could be a neighbor child that came over to visit? 
And when they heard the music, it was that neighbor's child that came out. And if it was a neighbor's child that came out first, would you sacrifice that child? And what would that mom and dad think of you? I don't think you get the best neighbor in the neighborhood award, right? What if it was your wife? What if your wife was the first one out the door? What if your wife came out? Would you have sacrificed her as a burnt offering? Jephthah, what are you thinking? I would further ask him, hey, listen, if you destroyed successfully 20 towns, then you probably have a lot of loot in your hip pocket. To the victor goes the spoils. So, Certainly, you could have used some of that loot, some of that money, some of those resources, and you could have paid the ransom price for your daughter. You could have served as her kinsman redeemer, right? Why did you think of that? Jephthah, what are you thinking? After I get done talking to Jephthah, I then want to talk to the daughter, don't you? And, and here's the question I want to ask the daughter. Daughter? What are you thinking? The reason I want to ask that of her is because when she hears the content and the context of the promise that her dad made to the Lord, her response is, you gave your word to the Lord. Do to me as you said. What? what? Are you kidding me? Are you serious? I mean, what faith of that child, right? That would say, do to me as you have promised. And then she makes this request. Let me go for two months in the hill country. Let me grieve with my friends. Those that would have been my bridesmaids. Because I will never marry. Now, ladies, I'll give you this much. You've been thinking about your wedding day since you were like two and a half years old. I got it. I get it. Believe me, I understand. To have a daughter, to think about marriage, to plan for a marriage is a big deal. Believe me, in my life right now, I understand. I've got a daughter. She's getting married in December. I know that planning a wedding is a big deal, right? But this daughter comes out to her dad and she says, Dad, the one thing that's on my mind is reality, that if you keep this promise, I'll never marry. I want to say to that daughter, if your daddy keeps the promise, you'll never live, let alone get married. Why is getting married at the forefront of your mind? Why not my next breath being at the forefront of your mind? You're not so preoccupied with living. You're preoccupied with the fact that you won't get married. And then the text seems to reinforce that. She goes and she comes back after two months. Ladies, how many of y'all would have looked for someplace else to live? I mean, daddy's coming after me with a hatchet knife. He's going to cut me up. I'm going to be a burnt offering. I think you'd probably find someplace else to live. But this girl comes back. She comes back to her father. And then she says, now do to me as you promised. She doesn't come back and say, Dad, have you changed your mind? <laughs> Which is a question I think I would have heard. Dad, have you changed your mind on this whole 
you know, chop me up kind of thing. But then she comes back and she says, Dad, do to me as you have promised. And he does as he promised in the vow. And it says, for, for she was a virgin. The implication is that she would never marry. And this begins the custom of young Israelite girls going out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah. I get to the end of the story, and I've got some questions swirling in my mind, questions that up until now have not been answered, questions that have not been met. And the the biggest question I have is, did Jephthah kill his daughter? If he did, then that's contrary to how the character of God is displayed throughout the Scripture. Remember? Leviticus, Deuteronomy, he does not delight in human sacrifice. In Genesis 22, he stepped in it right the last moment so that Abraham would not sacrifice Isaac on the altar. So did Jephthah kill his daughter? If the answer is yes, then we think to ourselves that that's an action that flies in the face contrary to the character of God. If the answer is no, then maybe there's something in the story that I'm missing. So did Jephthah kill his daughter? Some people say yes. And if the answer is yes, let me just encourage you parents today, um, if Jephthah did that to his children, don't you do that to your children. Don't sacrifice your children on the altar of your busyness. Don't sacrifice your children on the altar of your success. Don't sacrifice your children on the altar of your career. So if Jephthah did that. Parents, don't you do that. Don't sacrifice your children on your altar. Some people say, yes, he did. Some of us say, no, he didn't. I'm in the camp with Warren Wiersbe. When Wiersbe says, I don't think that Jephthah killed, slaughtered his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. And he said, if you go back to the text, you can see it, and it's easily overlooked. So once again, I want you to lay your eyes on Judges chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. It's one word that makes all the difference. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. The next word in your translation, if it's like mine, is the word and. The Hebrew word that's translated as and can also be understood as or. Warren Wiersbe says, I think it's better to understand it as or. When I return in triumph from the Ammonites... What, uh, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's. Or I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. I think Jephthah is making a promise to God where he says, 
that if it is my daughter, if it is a person that comes out of my house, that person will be the Lord's. If it is an animal, if it's some other creature, if it's something else that comes out of my house that can be sacrificed, it will be slaughtered unto the Lord. It will be offered as a burnt sacrifice, holy and pleasing and acceptable unto God. I think the key there is to understand and as or. I think it also makes the whole rest of the story make a whole lot more sense. That why would Jephthah, Jephthah make this promise? Because he's saying, listen, if anybody comes out, I will, I will give them to the Lord. He knows that his daughter may be the one who comes out. So it was customary in those days to give your children in the service of the Lord. Sons and daughters. And when a son or daughter was given in service to the Lord, to his work, his temple, um, his, his uh, ministry, that child would take a vow of chastity, which meant she would never marry. She would never have children. Oh, if the daughter understands that, that's why she's so preoccupied with marriage. That's why that's the first thing on her mind. She says, Dad, if, if we make good on your promise and you give me to the work of the Lord, you give me to the ministry of the Lord, Dad, I won't see you anymore and I won't marry anybody. Therefore, I won't have any children. Can I go for two months and just grieve over this? Then when I come back, I'll be ready to go and serve God. And Jephthah says, okay. Go and do that. So she goes and she comes back to make good on the vow, on the promise that was made. Had it been some animal, he just simply would not have given that to the work of the Lord. He would have sacrificed that. Regardless of whether Jephthah does or does not sacrifice his daughter, which I think he does not. There are a lot of people who think he does, but I think he does not. I think the hinge is right there on how you understand that a conjunction which could be and, I think it should be understood as or, just like Warren Wiersbe says. But regardless, Jephthah is saying to the Lord, you're worthy of radical surrender and real sacrifice. Because whatever comes out of his house is something that means a lot to him. It's something that is close to him. It's something that means something to him. And whatever comes out of his house, he says, God, I'm going to give it to you. It's a real sacrifice. It is radical surrender. When you and I study this story of Jephthah, the two things to me that come to mind are the massive mercy of God and that he's worthy of radical surrender. And I think that's the takeaway for us. That the God that we gaze upon today, he is massive in his mercy. And he is worthy of radical surrender. So if he doesn't step in your Judges chapter 11, if he doesn't step in like he did in Genesis 22, if he doesn't step in, he is still worthy of radical surrender. He still is massive in his mercy towards you. If you think about this, as you put those two ideas together, that God is massive in his mercy and he is worthy of radical surrender. When you put those images together, what picture comes to mind? Of course, you can think about Genesis 22. It's when Abraham was about to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, and God is massive in his mercy and worthy of radical surrender. 
You could think about those three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the first service, I literally almost called them by their veggie tail names, but I corrected myself quickly. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when, when you read that story, you walk away, and, and those three Hebrew brothers, they say, look, King Nebi, our God is able to rescue us, but even if he does not, we will never bow down and worship you. What are they saying? God is massive in his mercy. He's able to rescue us from your fiery furnace, and he's worthy of radical surrender. Oh, friends, when you think about those two statements coming together, being galvanized into one, you think of the life of Jonah, don't you? Jonah, who wanted to go in the opposite direction, running away from God, running away from God's task upon his life. And God captures him, spits him out of a whale. Eventually, Jonah goes to Nineveh. There's a great revival. They repent. Jonah, the preaching prophet, becomes the pouting prophet at the very end. And I just think that at the end of Jonah chapter 4, at the end of his life, he says, God, you are massive in your mercy because you even saved my enemies. And you're worthy of radical surrender even as I get spit out of a whale. Yeah, you put those two Statements together that God is massive in his mercy and he's worthy of radical surrender. Oh, but friend, there's another picture that comes to my mind and I hope it comes to your mind too. We've been together long enough. You know where this is going. That when you think of the massive mercy of God on display, when you think of the fact that this God who's massive in his mercy is worthy of all radical surrender unto him, I hope that you're now looking intently into the cross of Calvary, that you are on Mount Calvary, that you see Jesus as he's dangling precariously on a cross made of wood. He's hanging between two thieves, a thief on his right and a thief on his left. And this Jesus, who is the God-man, fully God, fully human, he hangs there to make you holy. He hangs there so that he could drape you in his massive mercy. And because of his actions on the cross, you realize that he is worthy of your radical surrender unto him. Jesus hangs there. And he asked the Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They're hurling insults upon him. They're spitting upon him. They're saying, can't you, who opened the eyes of the blind man, can't you heal yourself? Can't you save yourself? Won't you come down from that cross? And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He hangs there at just the right amount of time, not too long, not too little, to the point that he says to Telestai, it is finished. Payment for your sin is paid in full. He bowed his head, gave up his ghost, took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a stone in front of it. And for the rest of Friday, Jesus was dead in that tomb. And all day Saturday, he lay lifeless. Even into the early hours of Sunday, there was nothing. But every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us, record for us, that early on Sunday morning, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. When the ladies came to anoint the body for proper burial, the stone was rolled away, not to get Jesus out, but to get them in. The angels said, come and see the place where he lay. Now go and tell that Jesus is alive. When you go to Calvary on Friday, it takes you to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. And when you see that portrait, you see God's massive mercy. And you see that he is worthy of radical surrender. So you give him all that you are. 
All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. And in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. Even the stuff that's close to me. Even the daughter of my life. Even the son of my life. Even the precious people of my life. God, I give them to you because you are worthy. The people that I meet are people in need of massive mercy, and God has it. The people that I meet are those who need to understand that Jesus is worthy of radical surrender. Maybe you're here today, and you've got a mess. The magnitude of your mess is overwhelming. Your sin has messed you up. It's destroyed relationships. People are hurt because of your disobedience. You need mercy. God can supply it. He is rich in mercy. And maybe you're here today, you just need to hear that God is massive in his mercy and he wants to give it to you. But maybe you're here and you say, I've got something that I'm holding on to. It's something that's holding on to me. And today you need to hear that God is worthy of radical surrender. So hear the prayer of Alexander White, who said, God, all that I am, I give to you. And what I can't give you, I invite you to come in and take. All that I am, I surrender to you. All that I am, I give to you. And for whatever reason, whatever I cannot give you, I invite you to come in and take because you have jurisdiction over it. You have sway over it. You have power over it. So I surrender it all to you. Is there somebody today who's holding on to something? Maybe you're holding on to someone. Maybe you're holding on to some situation. Maybe you're holding on to some scenario. And today you just need to surrender it unto him. God is massive in his mercy. And God is worthy of a radical surrender unto him. This morning, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, today can be the day of salvation. We're going to sing a song If you've never made public your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment the first note is struck, please come down, take a minister by the hand. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord, but you have a mess in your life and you need some massive mercy. Today, I encourage you to come, kneel here at the altar and pray. Maybe you need to come and join the church as one did this morning in the 915 service. Maybe you have another decision that needs to be made. As God is working upon you by his spirit, won't you respond in obedience? Why? Because he's massive in his mercy and he's worthy of radical surrender. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, we pray that you'll have your way in this moment. Help us to please you. Help us to obey you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.